You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders. I'm Henry Tetley. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Welcome back to another episode of the Evolution Exchange. Uh, Today we're going to be discussing choosing the right tech to enable scalability. So let's get into the intros. Andy McQuarrie, do you want to uh, kick us off? Yeah, hi, my name's Andy McQuarrie. Um, not Australian, as the accent you give away. Been in Australia for eight years. Um, most recently was CTO at a, a startup called Hivery, um, but now kind of looking for the next thing. So, yeah, watch this space. Nice. Cheers, Andy. Um, Matt, over to yourself. Okay, cool. My name's Matt. Uh, I'm currently CTO at my book. My, my background is more on um, the startup side, starting businesses. I've been more an entrepreneur, CTO type, co-founder, starting something, building it, and then either closing it down or selling it off. Selling it off, obviously, being the preferred one. So my expertise in this conversation is more how to get the most out of the infrastructure that you have. I think from some of the pre-discussions, some of the other guys have scaled some really weird and wild and, and wonderful things. And I'm actually looking forward to hearing what they've got to say. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, going to be an interesting one, I'm sure. Um, Robert, over to yourself. Uh, g'day, I'm Robert Love. I'm currently the CTO at a company called Q-Control. Um, we essentially build uh, quantum infrastructure software um, and have dealings in um, quantum sensing as well. Company's been around for about five and a half um, years now. I've been there since the start. I think similar to probably Matt Stone here, but a lot of my experience has been in the startup space. So uh, growing things from, from zero to something um, and that's, uh, that's been pretty interesting. And, and similarly, looking forward to what uh, the other panelists um, have to say here, because we're currently going through um, a bit of a scaling phase right now. Awesome. Cheers, Robert. And, um, and Andy Baker. It's, it's Barker, but don't worry about it, Henry. Um... Sorry, mate. It's all right. I'm Andy Barker. I'm CTO at Swipe Jobs. Uh, I've been doing this for about seven years at Swipe Jobs. Um, My background tends to switch. I do big transformation projects at large companies. So digitizing systems that are internal, exposing externally, or working at startups. So I've done both. I prefer startups. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes someone offers you a good project that you can't really turn down. Cool. Well, uh, well, thanks for, for joining us today, guys. Um, so let's kick off with what Matt wanted to speak about today, which was at what point do you move from simple infrastructure, um, such as web servers and DB servers, to something more complex? Uh, Matt, the, the floor is yours. Okay. Well, I guess from my, my background, I started off running Xenix on 486 things, um, which might date, 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 date me a bit. Um, but I've, I've, I've been able to grow and looking at the, the growth of technology as well, the what you can buy now for not much money um, can take you a really, really long way if, you, if, if you're smart about the way you um, you, you build it. Um, I guess that, that, that's the first point I'm, I want to say. When you, like 20 years ago when you were doing a startup, it was scaling, scaling. How, how, how are you going to scale? Um, nowadays, just even through the cloud, um, just through Amazon, you, you can take yourself a long way without a lot of complex infrastructure stuff. Um, and so my, I guess my point to you, I would consider these guys much more experts than me in this is, at what point do you go, actually, in, in, you know what? There's a much better way to do this. Um, what, are, what are the things on offer that can take my simple 
web service. I may have like three or four web servers front-ended um, via load balancer of some form, and then maybe two, two, two database servers. At what point and what's the way that you guys would go, hey, we need to provide a much better solution for our, for, for our clients. Um, particularly if you get something right, you can have literally the world coming, come, coming to your property. I've kind of had that happen a few times, uh, but I've always been able to just using a combination of Redis and just, I'm able to tune the Unix box really, really well. Um, being able to survive being slash dotted and being on, and being on, being on TechCrunch. Back when those were a thing where you, you could get a million people coming to your site in, um, in like 15 minutes, just simply Mike Arrington writing a blog about you. Um, but you know, so I'm, I'm kind of really interested to hear what, uh, Robert and Andy and Andy have to say about um, at what levels they went, hey, I've got to do something different from this simple thing and what, what kind of approach they took. And is that still relevant now, taking into consideration what you can do with the cloud? And also, I can go to Dell or whatever hardware provider and buy something that was unimaginable 10, 10 something years ago. Um, so that's, that's really my kind of question to these guys. Um, Someone else take the floor and uh, answer my question. Yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe just give you an idea of some of your journeys of at what point did you hit an inflection point and you had to change your mentality. Um, sure, uh, Andy, Andy, over to yourself. Cool. Um, I was very lucky in my current role. And um, one of the main things that I was lucky about is that we, because we attached to scale as a company, so we always knew within a year we'd have between half a million and a million users. So we provide software to existing companies to do what they already do, but they wanted to give something to the end user. So this particular one, we knew we had to scale to half a million to a million users. And we're kind of like Uber for jobs. What you don't want is the same, the same Uber request causing three Ubers to turn up at the same time, right? That would be a big failure. Same thing for us, we give temporary jobs away. So for us, that transactional problem is kind of something that's hard to solve by cash and everything else because the data needs to be up to date. It's not the same as, oh, I can cash this for 20 minutes. With us, we have every, what, 10 minutes, we have 50,000 users on the platform, all of them in different areas all over the US, all taking jobs. How do you keep that information up to date? So I'm very lucky because I, I had that problem right at the start and you solve for that problem for the beginning. I've advised other people and other companies where they've rolled out city by city or something like that, where they have a transactional problem. And the big trap is what you're talking about doesn't scale. And so it's very key to go, if this is really successful early, thinking about strategies that could fit into your kind of architecture, but not necessarily going crazy and implementing them because you'll never get to city three because everything's too complicated everything's too slow to deliver and i think we'll talk about it later but we i think we'd all agree there's a trade-off right the more you build for scalability inherently the more complex your system is and the key is you know you have to try and simplify it but that's that's been my experience nice cheers andy um we'll, we'll, we'll go we'll go to the other andy <laughs> yeah, thank you um I mean, I, I'm going to maybe answer that question in a slightly different way. I, the way that I think about 
when scaling changes and has changed through throughout my career. But I generally look for two signals, two inbound signals. One would be proactive. Where is the business going? And um, what what is the pro- product roadmap telling you that you're going to need um, in a, a reasonable time frame? Well, that be three months, six months, twelve months. Um, kind of similar to, to what um, Andy said about your own out city by city. Then, okay, so there's, ha- there's half a million people live in this city, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Another one would be more reactive. So, what is my telemetry telling me about what's going on in my system? Um, is there a particular bottleneck? Then the classic one is always kind of reading writing from from databases. Um, they obviously kind of is, is kind of um, we, we touched on earlier. Right? This can be a, a, an answer to that, but. But I would think about what's your product roadmap telling you that you're going to need and what is your what is your operations, what's your day-to-day telemetry from the platform telling you about where your constraints are. And then I would think about, okay, so if, if I have got a constraint in my, my database, um, is that be the right constraint? Yeah, am I going to need to think about um, potentially changing the database type that I've got to be a bit more... Um, read optimise it a bit more right optimised is, is kind of is how to think about it and if it's not database and it's per, perhaps elsewhere in the stack then what what analysis approaches can you take to say okay these are the the patterns that I would look for um, to make sure that I can scale effectively um, I kind of building on um, on Kanandi's approach I mean one of those would be um, the, the kind of classic circuit breaker pattern where you would say, okay, so I've got this very core um, customer journey that I want to uh, I want to protect, and in a banking scenario, that could be something like I want to make sure that every single user that comes on can see their balance. However, um, them being able to move money from one account to another may be something that we put into a circuit breaker, so we can make sure that all as much available resource, etc., goes to that kind of core customer journey. So, yeah, I'd say. Then the two input signals proactive and reactive. Where is the constraint in your where is the constraint in your your day-to-day operations and then think about what kind of architectural patterns can you use to make sure that, that you get ahead of the problem. Um and then the, the classic the kind of sort of capacity plan that I always try and follow um, and have do strict try um as a twice the capacity that you think you're gonna need at any one time. So if you think you think you need to scale to let's say ten thousand uh, TPS, I mean that's a huge number. But um, if you if you need to uh, to scale to that, then um, you want that capacity to, to do quite that. They obviously proactive bursting and what have you. There is um, that that's not necessarily the issue it once was, but but that's how I generally think about it when it comes to capacity planning, particularly when it comes to storage and databases. Thanks, Andy. Uh, Robert, what about yourself? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I guess I get the benefit of um, of the answers that have come before me, but um, I'll, 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 I'll try and come at it from a bit of a different perspective. Um, so I, I, the original question was around sort of, you know, when do you decide to move from a sort of a simple infrastructure uh, to something more complex? And I, I, I don't think any of us would, would ever want to move to something more complex uh, deliberately. Um, and I, I kind of don't ever really see it as like this, this binary of, okay, uh, we, we've been simple up until now, now we're going to be complex. 
um, it's a, it's kind of always more of a sort of a continuous spectrum um, as you go along. And I think um, you're always being pulled towards the complex um, with technology. Your stack is always being pulled towards more, uh, towards, uh, towards a, a tendency to complexity um, all the time. And I think, um, I think uh, you know, complex environments, they, they sort of, they, they spawn anti-patterns of more complexity as well. You tend to be um, solving complex problems with more complex solutions and in introducing more complexity on top of complexity. And I think uh, the, the approach we tend to take uh, at Q-Control and I've taken, you know, wh wherever I really go, is just this uh, sort of vigilance um, in uh, continuous simplification. Um, and this, and you know, we're, we're at Q-Control, we have what's called our, our monthly engineering community of practice. And that's really an architectural forum um, where we, we see where we're at on a monthly basis and try and simplify um, from where we are. Are we getting too complex? Can we do this in a more simple way? So just uh, utter vigilance on continuous uh, simplification. But um, I think, um, you know, there, there are probably, you know, many factors. A lot of, a lot of the guys have already spoken about, about them, you know, uh, projecting growth um, in the customer base is, is one area where you're gonna look at, um, you know, different ways of doing things. Compliance is another area. So for example, you may be getting customers uh, coming on board that, you know, want complete segregation because they might be, you know, they, they might need to be GDPR compliant or something like that. They might not, they might want sort of data sovereignty in the UK or, or, or some other place. And if you've got a sort of a, a, a multi-tenant environment where you're using AWS and you're, you're hosting in the US, they don't want their data, um, uh, they don't want their data hosted there. So you might need to introduce some uh, there cost optimization is another one performance is another one so i think but, but i don't think there's um there's a point in time there's not one point in time where you go okay now we need to change it's continuously happening and you're continuously monitoring this and i think you're continuously trying to trying to pull it back into simplification a little bit far, you pull it back to, to introduce more simplification you go a little bit again pull back into more simplification and on you go okay no thanks and um, with regards to Obviously, you know, if you can keep it as simple as possible, obviously that's going to be the, the ideal situation. But what benefits um, do you get from, you know, going into something more complex? Like, how, how would that benefit the, the, um, the growth of the company? Uh, Andy? I think the other thing um, on that as well that I forgot to mention earlier, which, which leads into your, your question, Henry, is there can be savings in if you do scalability right right so one of the things you you mentioned matt is i can buy an infinitely powerful machine from aws right and i can buy a really closely located disk and i can run my big relational database in the middle of that and that is when you see the cost of that that is the reason that jeff bezos has a rocket in general and in particular right and one of the things we talk about when we're talking about cloud and cloud architecture um is if you don't watch the costs on that more traditional simplified design of database web server load balancers and you have a highly transactional system you will very 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 quickly spend a lot of money in aws a lot of money especially if you have real high transaction volumes if you get it wrong it can literally kill your company right from a from a cost perspective so it doesn't kill you from a scalability. You can always buy a bigger machine, but it will kill your EBITDA and it will kill your overall kind of everything else. 
right? Jeff will Jeff will literally buy another rocket off your back, and and <laughs> really profit from your success. And that's that's something that we've seen a lot from trying to solve our problem is how we manage AWS costs. And the architecture we chose has really helped with that, given the transaction and the scale. But that's that's the other kind of thing that the scalability problem almost has changed. It's not so much you can always buy a bigger boat, but that boat is really expensive and it doesn't scale in a linear way. It scales in an exponential way. I can uh, absolutely second that. Um, you know, as a as a new company, when Q Control was a new company, sort of five and a half years ago, we we actually you know we we were able to take advantage of um, of some startup discounts offered by both GCP and AWS. They both offer a hundred thousand US dollars in um, in credit, and we chewed through that uh, pretty quickly. As Andy was saying, it's very easy to start chewing through that very quickly. Um, and um, and I know we've we've kind of discussed before that the kind of workloads that Q Control are running, they're essentially you know, large machine learning workloads uh, based on uh, simulating, uh, you know, uh, quantum computations and algorithms, which can, uh, which sort of scale exponentially. We don't know what's going to be coming through the pipe. We don't know what we're going to be sending uh, back through the pipe. Very, very unpredictable workloads. Um, and for this reason, um, you know, you know, when a, when a company starts, a startup starts, you're on a, a multi-tenant environment. All your customers are on the same environment. We, we quickly realized that we need to switch to a, a multi-tenant setup where each customer um, has their own instance and, uh, and then we can manage costs in that way. Um, so, so we experienced the exact same thing that Andy was, uh, was saying and that was our answer um, to that particular problem. Nice. I could sort of, so I don't know if you guys are aware of a guy, David Hunterman Hansen. He's the guy who created Ruby on Rails. Um, he's the uh, director of a company called Base, Basecamp. Or th th sorry, 37 Signals, which has a product called Basecamp, which is like a project management software. They, they've recently moved from Amazon to their own infrastructure. Their, their billings were something like $3 million a year. Uh, that's US. And even, even with putting on their own staff, They've they've managed to half the half the infrastructure bill. Yeah, I think um, also he recently wrote about moving away from microservices uh, to Monolith as well. Yes, yes. Well, if you're if you're a Rails guy, that's that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the example. Amazon Prime, an example. He said to as well. The Dropbox also did that years ago as well. The the, the Dropbox Amazon bill was. Enormous. I mean, I think it was like eight figures large. It was it was absolutely enormous, and, and they they went on prem um, and saved that saved a massive amount of money. Just a, a kind of maybe a slightly different approach, just kind of backing up what um, what, what pretty much everyone said up until now is the the, the cost of um, a cloud infrastructure. I mean, one thing to, to consider is um, the, the most the most recent rule. Um, we spend, uh, as everyone does, we spend an awful lot of money. We were on Azure, um, customer kind of mandated that the way to be on Azure. Um, not that Azure or any, is any more expensive or cheaper than the AWS, they're all very similar. But um, we um, we were writing a lot in Python. And obviously Python's really quick to develop in, but at runtime, it sometimes is not the best. And so we actually saw a huge decrease in memory footprint when we moved from Python to Rust, um, which obviously had a um, had a equivalent kind of um, saving because we could run it on far smaller machines. So yeah, that's a, 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 a kind of a same same but different. Um, something to think about when you're um, not necessarily related to, to architecture, but the the choices, the language choices that you make, can sometimes have a have a, have a big impact on these things as well. 
changing changing the language. That's a, that's an interesting strategy. Well, that it was. I mean, we had we had massive serialization and deserialization issues. I mean, similar to um, the, the, the the stuff that the, the robots doing. We it was essentially an optimization workload. Um, and and kind of we, I mean, at one point, our, our model blew out to needing 440 kind of RAM to execute. And when you say, when you say serializing and deserializing, are you meaning putting data in the database and getting data out? No, no, um, just the, no, the, um, just the cost and, and memory, etc. Okay, but is, 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 is that what's taking up the memory? When, yeah. you, when you need to put stuff into the database and bring no. everything out? No, sure, I mean, the way that maybe it doesn't do a whole level of detail, but I mean, essentially to, to create the model and to add data to the model, that's the stage that I see the ligation exercise on. You're not reading, you're not necessarily reading and writing from the database at that point in time, but you're essentially adding data to the model. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Robert, did you have something to add there? Um, I actually do, but I, I feel like I might be jumping the gun because it kind of touches on the next topic I think we're going to be talking about. But, but um, it can um, can relate very much to what Andy was just talking about um, uh, there because um, um, we're a, we're essentially a Python and uh, JavaScript house uh, as a you know as a scientific company. Um, obviously, a lot of Python, a lot of the stuff we do is in Python. Most of the stuff we do is in Python. Um, but I think. Um, you know, we're about to talk something something around the lines of sort of conventional wisdom and, and how that sort of, you know, hinders the delivery of, of scalability. And I think very much so playing it safe, uh, sticking to the language that you know, you know, going with what you know and, and no sort of willingness to reskill and not thinking outside the box. Um, I think, um, you know, at Q-Control, we really try and ask these questions all the time. Sure, we're using Python right now, but is that really the right thing to do? And very similarly, we have huge challenges when it comes to serialization and deserialization of, of large graphs coming out of TensorFlow being sent across the wire, um, you know, via GraphQL APIs. Um, and so, so we're, you know, we're, we're trying to think right outside that box, looking at things like Rust, like you, like you mentioned as well, and also different API strategies. And um, so that, that's something we're kind of pretty excited about uh, looking into next cab off the rank, really. What languages could we, we, we be using? What API strategies can we be using? What different technologies? We're kind of pretty sure we want to move away from GraphQL for these types of workloads. Absolutely, they're great for websites, but not so good for this. Um, and uh, so, so we'll we'll most certainly be moving away from that. But um, but it, but looking at other languages, Rust is an example. C is another. You know, what can we be doing in these areas to really boost performance? Th thanks, Robert. Um, Andy, uh, obviously. This with regards to you know what conventional um, wisdom have you found hinders delivery and scalability? Uh, obviously, that was something that you were um, quite keen to talk about. I'll let you uh, let you take take the floor. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm. It's it's an interesting one that I see because we have a slightly different design approach and have done for a while, being more event driven. Um, and so, one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of relational database theory actually massively hinders scalability. And one of the key ones is about duplication of data, right? So I was taught a long time ago, um, and I did a lot of work on relational databases and all those different things. And I was taught duplication of data is bad, right? And, and actually, 
what I've learned is that everything I learned when I was at university and for the first 10 years of my career was wrong. Duplication of data isn't bad. It was bad in 1970 when the first relational database was designed because 10, gig of di uh, 10 meg of disk space was what, 6 million US dollars? So you don't want to duplicate data. Now I've got what, 32 gig on a thumb drive in my pocket and yet we're still talking about not duplicating data and you still see people I interview whenever they think about that they still talk about not duplicating data in different places and it's pervasive in microservice design and I think if you look at the failed microservices design you'll see that same oh we didn't want to duplicate that data there so the composition on all of those things is wrong right the someone has to wear the cost of joining data back together in a relational database and it's the person reading the data we know this we put redis in the way we cache data and you know we often describe caching internally as the last resort of the untalented but that's kind of an internal thing so we stop doing it the kind of because when you cache it's correct but slow the first time and ever increasingly incorrect up until the point that you refresh the cache and so for me, that was kind of the one piece of conventional wisdom that I've seen that really impacts scalability is all stems back to that original database theory of not duplicating data around the place. But I'm interested what other people have observed in the space as well. Yeah, yeah great. Thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, well, the, I, I guess the, the obvious question to, the, to that is, is there a sinking cost if you're replicating data in, in the case, two or three places? How is a change replicated across? And are you literally you like freezing everything until that change goes across? That does, or are you just that that would be my first question. So, so I um, we use the honey but accurate eventual consistency. Um, so we we basically publish an event, and our microservices consume that event, and that is the only way a change is allowed to happen in the system. Right, you accept a command from the interface, and it's a pattern called CQRS, but you accept a command from externally to update data. You publish the data as changed, and all the views of that data, which are basically really good caches. So it's it's not dissimilar to a cache model, which is, you know, but all of those caches update so that when people kind of query the data, it's fast because there's no data assembly. You've stored it in a NoSQL database it can be queried, it's optimized for the view, and that cost happens when a change happens. Would I use it for banking? Probably not. Um, Matt, did you have any, anything to add, add to no, that? No, or... there was, so as, as, as it was describing that, that I, there are scenarios where I've done sort of something sort of similar, but there are other, other different scenarios where if you need something that's like asset, com asset compliant, or um, if you're in a financial world, um, particularly in the trading world, I probably couldn't take that approach, but again, most things in the trading world don't don't, don't scale to that. Well, happy to jump in here, Henry, if you like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, it was, um, I had a smile on my face when um, when Andy was sort of introducing this topic. So, um, I'm, I'm a I was a database guy from from way back as well, and also also learned the same lessons um, around around data normalization. And um, I actually never really thought about it in terms of saving this space. So I always thought about it in terms of the sort of sanctity of the data and referential integrity and um so um and um and also you know i would have thought about um in terms of uh, data duplication like sort of matt's uh, touching on as well how, how do you keep that data in sync uh, and in order to keep that data in sync it feels like you're introducing um uh, complexity 
you might say unnecessary complexity. I don't know, but but I, I will say, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly, I'm certainly not um, not um, disagreeing with this because I I, I, I guess a, a, a funny anecdote was when I started at Q Control five and a half years ago. You can imagine there was the founder Mike Beerchik, who's a professor and academic, um, and then there's myself, the typical sort of digital, you know, um, you know software as a service guy um and um and i, I come on board there's the two of us um we we get another guy on board michael hush who's now our chief scientific officer he's an academic guy um you know a quantum physicist a theorist and we get together and when the and um and i and we start talking about um and i start and obviously my my the first thing i go to is okay we need to build a a domain model of quantum what is the quantum domain model? You know, how am I going to model the quantum domain in a relational database? That's the first thing I started to do. That was the first thing I went to, um, and um, and so that's what we did. Um, and it was completely foreign to him. I mean, he had no idea what the hell I was talking about, um, and um, and it was really interesting trying to understand this sort of quantum domain and trying to model it like that. But I think we quickly realised, yeah, it's probably not the right way because essentially what they're doing is it's essentially a calculator in many ways. Um, and and really no need um, to, to build this model and to store it um, in that way. And in many ways, non-relational, which is what we're finding out and, and, and moving towards, is probably is probably better. We don't really need to worry about that sort of referen referential integrity or sanctity of data like that or, or duplication. So it was interesting that, to hear Andy talk about that. And my first um, instinct was to move towards that in the very beginning. Thanks, Robert. Um... Andy McQuarrie, how have you found it? Um, it's hindered delivering scalability. I mean, I, I would just turn back up with both in Andy and Robert have said back in the day. I mean, I've used, had to use Cafeterium a few things, but in, when I was still in the UK, what's first guy, so we had a, a video on demand and, and a, an SVOD platform in, in Australia for the equivalent of a Fox Go or, or Kale. Um, and Essentially, a, a microservice pattern um, we had to use, and um, there was a number of different Redrite um, use cases that we had, and and so we we used Mongo. Uh, there was a bunch of kind of we used we used Couch, uh, we used um, a, a bunch of the, the kind of those um, the data storage pattern to make sure that um, we chose the right um, the right uh, pattern for for that that use case to so that. Um, yeah, we could, we could read it right uh, as quickly as we needed to. Now, I guess we we knew we were optimizing for, and they were optimizing essentially. Um, uh, obviously, for uh, from my um, uh, not, not a financial use case at all. Um, oh yeah, we, we were optimizing for speed, so we wanted to be able to read and write um, really, really quickly. So those, those patterns that the guys are talking about, yeah, uh, have experience in them and can. Uh, definitely, either those are the three things to think about. Nice. Okay. Thanks, mate. Um, has anybody else got anything to, to add to that at all? I mean, I, I, taking a slightly different approach to the um, to, to the question, maybe. I mean, I would just kind of going back to the, the, the kind of the conventional wisdom element of it. I think the 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 the, the point that they kind of we touched on there about are we, are we choose the right language are you really pushing the team to, to learn I think there's some architectural patterns that, that people can fall into too quickly that can actually um, cause issues um, I mean 
it sounds like Andy's got an awful lot of experience on the event-driven approach and going to microservices too early and specifically going to event-driven microservices too early and Matthew can actually it can hinder um, scalability if you, if you get that wrong it can be very very difficult to, to, un, to unwind that and so and I've spoken to a number of, of kind of teams some some larger businesses some some startups where almost the first question is, is can you help us implement microservices and obviously the next question is why um, it's not can you help us get to X scale it's almost the default is can you use microservices and I I think I would just I would just put a word of caution there that they can be awesome and um, but they can also they can also add massive complexity that, that actually can that can stop you scaling as well if you're not at the, the maturity level from both a team and business point of view and took you really do that properly Andy? Yeah, I was going to say that I I really have to vigorously agree with Andy in terms of I hear microservices a lot. I talk to a lot of different developers through interviews and other things about people's different understandings and implementations of microservices. And it's got better in the last five years, but it's still a lot of what I hear is they're using it because everyone's they think everyone's using it. It's not my use case. And back to Matt's point, when do I, you know, the important point is that, do I really need this complexity in my life? Because having done this implementation, gone from two services when I started to pretty much 200 now, you know, which is what we run in one of our environments. It's a, it's a, it is a complex journey. You have to put a lot of stuff in place and you know, you get smoother as you go, but it is a bumpy ride. And implementing that is a kind of early stage business is probably a lot of cash in the middle of the room you may end up setting fire to because you're not going to get it right. Uh, at what stage would you say it would be a good time to, to look at transitioning into microservices then? I'd get some users first. Um, that would be... <laughs> I would I would get users and I would see a path to revenue. Right. And you can do that quite easily not doing microservices. The key the key is if you choose to get scalability by using some of the things in AWS like Lambda, because it's it's tempting, it's it's also a trap, right? Because as soon as you are successful, you hand over more and more of what your success. So that's kind of you wanna know something's gonna work and and have the product to an extent built out but you still need to know what good looks like and that's the other thing we always talk about as a as a team is like where are we going in a year two years and that in any journey but especially in the scalability journey you make better decisions if you know the scale that's going to be there in six months time and 12 months time you make different architectural decisions and different things because of that and that's really important to reinforce with a team going on this journey here's where we're trying to get to try not to make too many decisions that go in the opposite direction because if people don't know where they're going they will totally do that yeah. thanks um, mate um, robert yeah i'm i'm really interested in this actually i mean it's uh it, it's so true uh you know microservices are they are very sexy um but without a doubt in my experience without a doubt they certainly add um plenty of overhead um, in terms of uh, time to get features out the door um, because of the, the dependencies um, that need to be managed. And even from a, from a project governance uh, perspective as well, 
um, you know, managing a, a whole series of, of services amongst many different uh, uh, codependent teams. You know, if you're using a system like Jira to manage all this, it can get very complex, much, much more difficult than just a monolithic um, application, which, you know, thinking back to the days of monoliths was so, so simple. Um, but, um, you know, I think I think one one example of, uh, of where you, you might consider moving to microservices and is, is certainly a case with queue controllers if you're in a multi-product environment, something like Atlassian as well, with multiple different products. You know, it's, a, it, it's quite tempting to, you know, um, uh, have services that are shared amongst all those all those products. For example, you know your identity and access management, uh, payments, billing, subscriptions, you know, content, that type of stuff. Um, but um, but the overhead, I, I mean, I feel the overhead. I, I feel it quite painfully. Um, and and I, I I'd love to hear some ideas about how you would measure the ROI um, that you get from from going microservices and and you know being able to make a decision as to whether to go back. Sure. Andy? I mean, what we found, because Jira is fun, right? I love Jira. I just, I spent an, a solid hour of my life reconfiguring several things today, just because thanks, thanks Atlassian, I, I'm lost in the admins console. But um, what we did, and we changed how we measured complexity by going to microservices, especially because we have kind of control services that publish events and that and manage change, and we have view services, right? It's a very traditional CQRS model. Um, but what we figured out to to kind of scope features, how many different services need to change, right? And that becomes your measure of complexity. But what we've seen is when you get the when you get the balance right, um, it's actually easy to make those changes because each one, in our experience, can implement that change in their own time. If you're adding a new field, if you're doing that, it's like, we'll do it all here and we'll make everything ready for it and we'll start publishing it, or you can start publishing it, it doesn't affect anything. And then the different services can start building up a picture, right? So we've come up with a bunch of different patterns, but what we've found is once you get to that kind of, um, it's easier to manage microservices if you've got the kind of definition, and that's really the key with microservices is what does a service do? Right. If you get that right, you can then go, well, your team manages this. And it's similar to what you said with the products, but you can do it on a smaller scale and have this team manages these 10, 20, whatever it is. Because, I mean, my previous job, I was what, running 100 developers working on a monolith. I never want to go back. I want to make that absolutely clear for everyone here. Right? I don't want to be running 100 developers on a monolith trying to do weekly releases. Because it was literally, you finish one release and you start merging the next one, and it's uh, it's a horrific experience. But that's just me. So. <laughs> I, I can imagine that's uh, that's pretty uh, pretty chaotic. <laughs> um, so so yeah, look, I appreciate the the insights there. Um, with regard to, to Robert, what you, you wanted to speak about was around proactively um, delivering continuous improvement versus reactively fixing things that require improvement in the moment. Um, what, what's your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think interestingly enough, we've probably uh, touched on a, on, a, on a lot of this already. Um, but I think just for, I guess, just to give an idea of, of how we like to, to work at Q-Control, um, you know, we, we've been speaking a lot about architecture. I, th I think Q-Control is very, very much a, an architecturally focused um, engineering practice. Uh, and even if, um, I, I think we always, we always have a, um, a perfect state in mind, what we consider to be a perfect state, which is changing continuously. Um, you know, it could be changing daily. 
Um, but at any one point in time, we have an idea of where we would ideally like to be from an architecture, um, infrastructure and applications uh, perspective. And we're constantly striving to get to that point, although we may never reach it because we're focusing on other things. Uh, it might simply just be uh, feature delivery, but we always have that that point in mind. And we facilitate that through discussions, like I was saying, the, the engineering community of practice, which we have monthly, which is very architecturally and standards focused, where we discuss these things um, and actions come out of those and, and, and changes happen. Um, and, um, but, um, but that's essentially the approach. You know, we're constantly asking, is this right? We ask this all the time. And if not, we will try and change it quickly. We're always striving to be in a position where where change and improvement isn't such a huge lift. You know, we want it to be a light lift. We want to maintain that simplicity so that any any changes that we do make aren't going to be um, uh, no-goes. So, um, so it's really related to that idea of just continuous simplification. That's the idea. Nice. Thanks, Robert. Um, who's, who's got something to add to that? <laughs> I can probably add something just from a startup point of view. Is when you're testing, you're going through customer discovery. Um, every every minute or every, every hour you're putting into engineering, it's not a minute or an hour that's going into your product development. So, um, that's just if you dive into complexity really quickly, your products are going to go anywhere. That's really that's only which may, maybe slightly contradicts some of what these guys are saying, but it's also like that's that's why I asked the question at the beginning. At what point do you go, hey, I I need to change my mindset into all these wonderful microservices and yeah, solutions. yeah, yeah. I mean that, that's something that you know we we have spoken about um, before that you know uh, around not over-engineering things, not making things too complex from the beginning and, and focusing more on um, yeah, having the products out there and not just engineering for, for, for the sake of it. Sorry, I'll toss this out. I think that was, a, that, that was a roundabout way of saying that I'm really enjoying what these guys are talking about. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, Andy McGorry? Yeah, look, just a, a, kind of a couple of things. Um, I guess just to start back up what, what what Robert was saying. I mean, I'm I'm a big believer in um, uh, target architectures. Um, something that 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 kind of that. I mean, whether it's perfect or otherwise, that that can agreed on state that you're aiming for, and you could you can as Robert says, you can change daily if you want to. But does everyone agree that that that's what you're going to do? Um, a couple of kind of other sort of points. Um, the continuous improvement thing. When you put the technical debt lens on top of that, I think it becomes imperative that you you pay down technical debt as you go. Um, like most businesses will move in fits and start, and, and paying down technical debt constantly can become challenging. But but that that ability to go back and make sure that that you're consistently looking at continuous improvement uh, and that the technical debt doesn't um, uh, doesn't cause a scaling issue is I think is is really really important. Um, the thing I would say about um, about reacting, reactively fixing things in the moment, um, I mean those those can be super disruptive. Um, but wait, but when they come up, um, I, I'm a big believer in that kind of that swarm model of when something comes up, the team should swarm around it when context is high, fix it, and then move on, and not just kind of bandaid it. Uh, so, um, proactively fix things. Think about technical debt. Um, if things do break, then then make sure that you pause 
you swarm around the problem and, and you fix it and when context is high and it's not okay so we'll come back to this in, in a month's time when people was have forgotten what the actual issue was so yeah that's that, that would be my take on that particular issue great thanks andy uh robert yeah, um, I, I'm actually really interested in this uh, this piece of the conversation around sort of product versus engineering, and um, you know, I think there was the comment before. You know, every every you know every minute you spend on engineering, you're not spending on on building the product. But I'm not. I I kind of take a different different view on this, and I don't think that you can. Um, I don't think you can separate them because the way we see sort of engineering at Q Control in particular is um, engineering is purely in service of the product. Um, you know, whenever you're engineering, you're engineering the products. That's what you're doing. You're making the product. You know, products are the ones that, that decide what to make. Um, engineering, our job in engineering is to decide how to make it. Um, and, you know, our, our motto at Q-Control is to build the thing right, pure and simple. That is your job. Build the thing right. Whatever product wants to make, you make it right. That's all That's all you need to do. Um, and so, so really, engineering is really just a means to an end. And I think one way... We try not to use the term technical debt at Q Control as well. We call it product debt um, because it's not just a you know it's, it's not just it's not just our problem. If if there's debt, yeah, um, you know if there's if there's debt in the code base, then that debt belongs to the product. You know, it's not just technical. It's in, it's impeding the product. It's hindering the product. It's making it not as good as it can be. Um, so that's one way we sort of address that. Uh, and I, I think uh, you know we, we've been talking about you know uh, paying technical debt. Yeah, we want to do that. That's a that's a tough one. And I think um, you know you you really need you really need a product team that's uh, that that can see that debt is product debt, and they understand that it's harming their product, and that you get you get them on board in that way. And I, I think we're very lucky to have particularly a platform product manager at Q Control that understands that implicitly and really and really sort of rallies around um, the 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 technical side of what they're doing. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. Um, Andy? Gee, I wish I'd thought of calling it product debt. I am going to regret that for a while now, and I am going to use it from now on, because I really love that. So thanks, Robert. That's uh, that's given me something pretty big to take away. Um, but yeah, what I was thinking, and just to echo some of the points I think that Andy and Robert have made as well, the... the you need to be, especially when you're building systems that are scalable, they will go bad um, pretty pretty quickly. So what I've seen in systems with high volumes is you need to watch for the warning signs. You need to be monitoring the warning signs and fixing stuff as early as possible. Because if you've got to the point where you're huddled around a problem, and let's not pretend that I haven't, but if you've got to that point you probably walked past three broken windows and a door missing a lock and were like, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And there's a small amount what you walk past you accept, right? But in a scalable system, it can go, what I've seen is you get exponential scaling. So you see maybe the memory's gone up like a little bit and it gets to this breaking point that it just goes to hell in a handbasket in, in volume and in everything else. And that's something that... Um, I would call out is you need to be constantly paying down that platform debt, constantly doing those things to really make it work. Thanks, Andy. Um, and 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 finally, um, on Andy McQuarrie, your you, you had a question around: um, Does everybody agree that choosing a technology is both uh, that this both open source but also a managed platform is a good choice to enable scalability? Um, firstly, Andy, what, what's your thoughts on that? 
my um, my, my thoughts are it can be. And so, so just to give uh, to give an example, I'll, I'll give I'll give two examples um, uh, to to maybe kind of paint the picture. So, um, I mean, the, the whole idea about open source is is it's very quick and cheap to get started. They're not paying any vendor costs. Generally, you'd be signing up to some kind of open source license. Um, as we touched on, typically you'd be installing something like this on a, on AWS Azure GCP, your your cloud of 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 choice, and you can get started really quickly. They're generally can be really strong ecosystems around them, and, and so you're, you're not paying vendor costs. And so, two examples would be depending on the workload, um, Spark uh, can be a really powerful kind of data processing. Um, a kind of language and an approach, um, and and you can get started in that very quickly, and you can you can do that yourself. I wouldn't necessarily recommend people start um, with Spark on their own, um, but you could, for example, um, get an EMR cluster from from AWS or the equivalent from GCP or um, a, a, or, or Azure. Um, but then right at the kind of the dollar end is there's a a managed platform called Databricks, which essentially puts out a wrapper around Spark and then gives, gives you enterprise, um, gives you access to social architects, gives a whole kind of um, partner network that you can kind of use to help you scale as, as the business scale. So you can go from on one on one level, really, really quick, really cheap to get started right through to you can run a global business on it um, and you, you don't necessarily need to change the technology that you're using. The thing can scale with you. Um, and then another kind of slightly different approach would be um, open telemetry. Um, so again, very quick and, and easy to get started. So you you would need to pay for something like Datadog or again, pick your, your, your APM of choice um, using, if you implement the open telemetry standard, then you can capture um, telemetry in a way that would allow you to scale. And if you chose to go to insert your APM of choice name at some point in the future, if you wanted to, to have a managed service and you paid for, um, yeah, if you were the, the startup did well and you could have scaled Series A, Series B, et cetera, et cetera, then it may be that you want to spend some money on the platform. So again, those would be two choices where you could start off very cheaply, very small, but then as a business grew, you wouldn't necessarily need to change how you, the technology choices you make, the thing would actually just grow with you and then it becomes a, a kind of a, a budget and or dollars problem. So I guess my, my question would be is, does the panel agree that that's a good thing? Um, personally, I do, but not everyone would agree, I think. Sure. I, thank you. I mean, I, I guess we, we'll soon see what's what's everyone's thoughts. We'll go we'll go to, to the other Andy. <laughs> um we're big believers in open source. Um, I think the I think really what we've seen, and we we actually manage a lot of it ourselves, and we we believe in highly leveraged automation to do some of that. Um, to the point that we we kind of and probably shouldn't be now. We should be looking at things like Confluent and things like EKS, but we actually manage our own cube cluster and our own Kafka clusters because there was no EKS when, EKS when we launched Cube in Prod. Um, so that's some of the things we're looking at. And I think having that open source and looking at the community around it, and that's really important. We've made some choices with open source that have been poor, right? Where we've selected technologies and then the community has literally died. 
and so that's always a that's always a challenge with open source it's about picking the right horse picking the right active community um there was a running joke where we did a presentation on every single one of the apache data processing projects i don't know if anyone's ever done if anyone's ever gone through all of those but there is an absolute uh lot um <laughs> I think it's not even it's not even the metric one. It's the whole imperial shit ton um, of different data processing projects that have been abandoned by various companies inside Apache. And so, picking the right technology, knowing the community support, and knowing that there's somewhere where you can put it later who will support it for something like Kafka. There's a confluent. That's really important. Having knowing that you do have that managed option later. Or even, you know, you want to go the Databricks route, that's fine. Um, is really, really critical to look at when you're choosing open source technologies. Thanks, Andy. Um, Matt, would you like to uh, would you like to go next? Uh, so I'll just sort of preface my comment by saying that I think these guys have managed much larger applications than I have. I've always exited before. Um, we've we've got to this stage. Um, well, I would. Uh, yeah. So, so like the, the the only thing I would add is um, I'm going to say this. I like Microsoft in the sense that I bought Microsoft shares and they split and they split and they split, and I sold and I managed to buy a lovely house. Um, but I never use Microsoft in production again. Um, that's just I just found it root. I it just didn't gel with me. So I'm I'm quite happy sitting stuff on Unix. I can tune it. I can run it. I can I can tune a Postgres database. I can scale that to quite large. Um, and it's it's not hard. And as Andy number one uh, was saying, there's a great there's there's, there's a great community there. Um, but it, as, as soon as you get outside that native iron thing, I'd I'd be encouraging people to listen to these guys. But um, un, 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 understand your platform. Un, understand if you're using Unix, it's not that hard to um, um, optimize memory, op, optimize disks. There's plenty of plenty of literature about it, and you can make a very small Amazon instance scale a long way. Um, I had one small instance to running a private Twitter for 21,000 people that was doing voice and video, but it was only just a really small Amazon instance. So you don't necessarily need massive amounts of computing power if you spend a week understanding how Unix works, a week understanding how to optimize the file system. Um, that kind of contradicts the comment I, I said before. Every second you're spending on engineering takes away from the product. But um, yeah, that's that, that. That would be my things. Understand your platform and what you can do with it. Sure. Before you look, 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 look at these lovely gentlemen, um, follically challenged and grey-haired. That's that's your destiny if you go down to this mega, mega um, <laughs> infrastructure that they're managing. That's it, the, the pros and cons of it, I guess. <laughs> Robert, what's your thoughts? Um, I, I don't think either. I don't think I agree or disagree. I'm kind of neutral on this, really. Maybe a little unopinionated. I mean, you know, the, the original question is around, um, you know, technology that's both open source but also a managed platform. Like, obviously, we, we use a lot of open source um, at QControl. Um, the the software we use it's um that we don't make the decision based on whether it's open source or not never i don't i can't imagine i can't remember 
a single situation where, where we've made the decision. We don't use GitHub because Git is open source. Um, you know, we use GitHub because it's um, cool and awesome um, and reasonably cheap, works really well. Um, so, you know, I don't really care whether whether the, the technology backing it is um, is open source or not. Um, I think that the trend we've, I guess we we will have a problem. Um, we do an evaluation of the various options out there. They might be open source. They might be commercial. They it might be a managed platform. It might be something you can download and set and set up yourself. So an example would be identity and access identity and access management. You know, you you could go down the route of using something like Okta, um, a managed service. Um, we we've been using uh, Keycloak, which is a, a Java based um, solution, just like Okta, but we've we've installed it ourselves and and configure it ourselves um you know we use uh, you know another example would be using celery for queuing which is a which we've set up ourselves using flower for monitoring that um, we use wagtail for for content management so these are all sort of you know uh, open source tools that we're setting up ourselves but then we use a lot of a lot of stuff that is both either open source or commercial and managed platforms the decision is really what's more fit for purpose for us. I don't think we think about it in terms of whether it's whether it's open source or not, or whether it's a managed platform or not. What's just going to work best for us? And once again, in the spirit of what we've been speaking about before, um, every single day, every single week, we will ask: Is this still the right thing to do? Should we still be using Keycloak or should we move to Okta? Should we still be using Wagtail or should we move to Contentful? Um, you know we're constantly asking this should we still be using celery or should we be using rabbit mq who knows but we're constantly asking these questions i can see uh, andy shaking his head there but um, I'll, I'll take that on advice <laughs> no i just we we blew up a rabbit mq it was it wasn't pretty talking of things that don't scale particularly well but that's a that's more a problem but that's more a problem with jms than it is with um with anything else it's another relational database technology that's kind of relies on a smart thing in the center rather than being able to distribute it properly. I think um, uh, the, the Andy's kind of approach um, on a, uh, or I guess input on the, the amount of kind of uh, um, open source projects, data processing projects that have kind of died. I think if anyone wants to choose one, um, I definitely kind of suggest that if if someone is making money from it, then there's a good chance that it's um, a, it's, it's got to a scale and it's got to a community that, that people think that they can actually make money from it. So, um, for example, Kafka, you can there's a whole bunch of people use Kafka. Whether you choose to pay someone for that is is entirely your choice. But but um, can I um, a businesses making money of kind of wrapping Kafka in a service? Um, or something else is generally a good, a good indicator that it's called the scale and, and it's this year to stay. Matt, did you, did you have something to say there? Sorry? Uh, no, 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 I was just saying all good. All good. Well, uh, well, yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. Um, there's, I think there's been some really uh, valuable insights there uh, that I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners will be able to, to benefit from, um, particularly, you know, when they're coming to think about... Um, what they can do to to scale their their current company um so yeah thank, thanks for joining and um yeah we'll uh, we'll, we'll catch you in the next one